uh, there's nothing like the opportunity to share what you've learned with somebody else because it does two things. First of all, it takes it from your ear to your mouth. And oftentimes, to go from your ear to your mouth, it's got to go through your own heart and mind. Some of us speak before we think, but most of us think uh, in time to speak. And so, therefore, it really forces you to think more about the Word of God. And the other thing it does, it, it forces you to uh, synthesize it, to boil it down, and to apply it to your own life. And especially as you hear other guys apply it to their life, it, it helps you to think about how this is going to change my life. And then... The third thing it does is that once you get it out on the table and you're talking about it, then you're sitting there kind of in community, the small group of you who are looking at each other and say, well, we're we going to do this or not. So there's, there's a kind of an informal, unspoken even uh, accountability that goes with being in a group. I do this all the time. I have all kinds of groups and uh, we talk and pray together and hold each other accountable at one level of intensity or another. And it's the way in which we learn and grow. And you'll notice when Jesus called Peter, he also called Andrew, and he called James and John. In other words, he called a group together. It wasn't just Jesus one-on-one. I mean, we might say, well, Peter, I mean, rather, John and Jesus may have been the tightest. But uh, it's hard even to say between uh, Peter, James, and John. Uh, but Jesus called a group, and they learned Jesus together. And I don't think you'll find an example really anywhere in the scriptures of someone really learning Jesus by themselves. And, and you see it today even in our own text as we look at it. T- turn to Ma- uh, Mark chapter 4. This is on page 1607 in your Bibles. By now, your Bible's probably automatically open to Mark <laughs> somewhere in those early chapters. But um, Mark chapter 4 is a long discourse of Jesus. It's the first one you get in Mark. And there are really only two very long discourses by Jesus in Mark's gospel. Matthew has... Five great sermons of Jesus that kind of frame his gospel. Mark really only has two extended sessions. One is in Mark 13, which is the Olivet Discourse, when Jesus is talking about the end of time. The other is Mark 4, where Jesus is talking about the kingdom. And the interesting thing about Mark 4 is not only does it show us that Jesus, once again, is focusing on the kingdom. As we saw earlier, when he came preaching, he came preaching repentance and faith in himself, but he came preaching a kingdom. That ought to tell us something, that our being converted to Christ, giving our lives to Christ, then engages us in a cosmic, a global work that Jesus was preaching. So we enter into a kingdom and we come to faith in Jesus Christ. And clearly that was what he was teaching. We see that in Mark 1, 14 and 15, you may remember. Here we get that first instance of Jesus really taking the time to lay out uh, the principles of, of belief And here we have, once again, the kingdom. And we see something of Jesus' style of teaching. And it is parabolic. He uses parables in almost everything that he taught. He used a parable. There's some uh, teachers of preaching, like uh, my friend Steve Brown, who says in preaching, if you can't illustrate it, don't say it. Because if if you can't illustrate something, you don't understand it. And when you look at Jesus' ministry, he was constantly illustrating to help us understand. And clearly showed that he understood because he could put it into an analogy that comes down to the lower shelf where all of us can get it if we will. Now, we're going to see all people don't get it. But nonetheless, Jesus shows us his style of teaching. It's very it's very homey. It's very down to earth. It's very simple. And of course, we all wish that our preachers would be as simple and clear and short as Jesus Uh, But let's take a look at this. We're going to just look at the first 25 verses. Now, in Mark 4, there are three major parables about the kingdom, and they're all uh, similes. You know, there were metaphors and similes and allegories. These are similes, which is to say the kingdom is like. That is, it is similar to simile. So we're going to see that there are three of these. We're only going to deal with one today, the longest one. And the other teachings that are interspersed in there about the kingdom Uh, and about the parable that he's teaching us. So let's look at the first 25 verses. We're going to back up then and examine this uh, massively important teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 1. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. 
He taught them many things by parables and in his teaching said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed as he was scattering the seed. Some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places. Some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop multiplying 30, 60, or even 100 times. Then Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. He said to them, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Amen. Okay, I want us to notice, first of all, in this big teaching about the four soils, that the secrets of the kingdom, that's what Jesus calls it, the secrets of the kingdom are taught by parables. These three parables are classic examples of how Jesus is going to explain the meaning of the takeover that's occurring through his incarnation, his life, his ministry, his death and resurrection, his ascension into heaven. It's about a kingdom, a takeover. And the secrets of the kingdom are taught by parables. Now, first of all, you'll notice that the parables teach God's redemption by means of God's creation. Now, this is important to pick up on. I want to just make a little side road here. Jesus is teaching about the eternal and the ultimate by means of that which is very physical and even temporal and visible to us. Now, this, this is not the main point we want to get into, but I just want you to notice why Jesus teaches this way and how he can do it clearly. Sometimes we think of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ as sort of giving us the grand escape from the realm of nature. That Jesus saves us and just takes us out of here. If not now, then certainly later. But that's a misunderstanding. That's more of a Greek idea of salvation, to be delivered from the material world. That's not what Christian salvation or redemption is all about. Christian redemption, Christian salvation is about saving ourselves and our entire context around us. So it's not just that there's an analogy between redemption and nature. There's an actual inner affinity with redemption and the realm of nature. So that when we think about the kingdom of God, what is being restored is this earth. 
Now, of course, we know from what Peter says that one day will burn. But what happens? We get the earth back completely restored. We're not going to heaven to be floating around on clouds playing harps with long white robes on. We're going back to the new heavens and the new earth with a city. And we're, we're going to be living in a redeemed, a redeemed uh, creation. So the connection between redemption and this world is very, very close. There's an affinity there, which, of course, gives us the same ability to go into the realm of politics or the realm of business or the realm of medicine or law or education. And we're seeing redemptive analogies all the time because Jesus salvation plan is ultimately going to save education and save medicine and save law and save business. And we have a grand idea of where this is all going. And when we're saved, we're the salt and the light that comes into those areas and we see them redeemed. And we begin the transformation work now, even though that we know it won't be ultimately consummated until later. Therefore, we can easily lose, use analogies in medicine or in law or in education or in business. Because there's not just an analogy, there's an inner affinity. Do you realize that medicine is not just a man, create, man humanly created idea, nor is law, nor business. These are things that inhere in the kingdom. And Christ's intention is to restore the whole thing, and He's beginning with you. So Jesus then can look at farming and talking about an analogy because farming and the kingdom inherently, in, they, they inhere. They, they, are, are, uh, uh, they have affinity with one another. So that's the reason that communication about the kingdom ought to be able to use everything around you as analogy. Because you have an idea of that very realm being transformed by the kingdom. One day, farming will be hundredfold fruitful. That's the kingdom of God. So then, of course, Jesus should be able to use that realm as an analogy to describe what salvation is all about. If you didn't get that... Skip it. Let's go to the next point. <laughs> the parables, though, teach God's redemption via God's creation. Now, look at how Vincent Taylor, a 19th century New Testament scholar, describes a parable. He says a parable is a metaphor or story. In this case, it's a simile connected with the affairs of daily life used as an illustration of moral and spiritual truths on the assumption that what applies in one sphere is relevant also in the others. So it is a story that connects what you see with what you don't see with the underlying assumption that the principles in what you see will apply also to what you don't see. That's the nature of a parable. Now, secondly, notice that parables serve a twofold purpose. Now, we're going to come back to the four soils in a moment. But if you look at verses 10 through 13, you'll notice that the parables serve a very important purpose. Uh, he says he who has ears to hear, let him hear in verse 9. So if you have ears to hear, you should be able to hear. Ears for the gospel. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. And they were curious. You know, their rabbis hadn't taught this way. And they said, Jesus, why do you, why do you tell stories? Why do, you, why do you talk about soils and seeds and sowers and things like this? And... Uh, he told them that the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. All right. So he's saying to them that the parables are the best way for me to reveal the secrets of the kingdom to you. We all appreciate a good story. And that's one thing we appreciate about Jesus teaching is that he tells stories. And so don't blame your preacher on telling stories. He gets it from Jesus. And maybe he doesn't tell enough of them or they're not aptly chosen. But Jesus used stories. So it reveals secrets to the believers, to those who really are interested. It comes across in those narratives. But there's a particular aspect of storytelling that helps it come across. It's because when a story is aptly chosen, as in the case of Jesus, it pierces right to your heart. It gets you in a way that mere Precept teaching will not do. Let me give you an example. Do you remember when David 
took Uriah's wife Bathsheba because he was, he, it was during the spring. He should have been out fighting battles like kings were supposed to be doing. But no, no, no. David stayed on the top of his little palace and looked out over the bathing, over the baths and saw the women bathing. Noticed Bathsheba. She looked gorgeous with all her clothes off. He said, I want that woman, even though she was married to Uriah the Hittite. So David has an affair with her, gets her pregnant, and he goes, oh, no, I'm in trouble now. So he arranges for Uriah to be killed on the battlefield. We're complicating this thing, you see. Once, once you decide not to repent, it just gets worse. So now he's committed adultery, gotten the woman pregnant out of wedlock uh, with him, and now he's murdered Uriah. And now Bathsheba is ready to have her child. And uh, Nathan the prophet comes to David. He says, David, did you hear about this guy over here next door? He had a guest come to him. He's a very wealthy man. And uh, he wanted to provide a, a you know, roast lamb. And what did he do? Did he take one of his many lambs out of his flock? No, sir. Went right next to the poor, right next door to the poor guy, took his lamb, who was a pet. The poor man loved his little lamb, but no, the rich man, he took the little lamb because he didn't want to take one of his own. So he took that lamb and slaughtered it. And David said, that man ought to die. And Nathan, Nathan said, you're the man. You're the rich man with all your wives. And what did you do? You took Uriah's little, little Uriah, took his wife. You didn't take one of your own. And you murdered Uriah. You're the man. So you see, David got out of his own moral defensive structure and he could clearly see. He could see the immorality of a rich man with many lambs taking the one little ewe lamb of the poor. That's obvious when you tell it to me parabolically. When you tell it to me about somebody else, I get it. When you tell it to me about me, <laughs> I'm immediately, well, no, wait, you don't completely understand. You don't understand the nature of testosterone. You don't understand what it's like to be a king with all the power and wealth. You can do whatever you want to do. And you don't understand the difference between is and was. You don't know the difference. You don't. We just, you know, when you're talking about me, I put, all, I'm, I'm, get, listen, if you think I was talking about Bill Clinton, I was. And now by parabolic form, you see, I'm really talking about you. You see, we all talk about him. We laugh at him. We get it clearly. We know that was idiocy. We know that that was silly, foolish. Anybody can see through it. And then it comes right to you. You're the man. You're the one who argues about the definition of is when you get into trouble. You see, that's the nature of a parable. You talk about somebody else. (laughs) And that's what Nathan did to David. And that's what Jesus is doing to us. He'll talk about something out here. We get it clearly. We see the secrets. And then, oh, you mean I'm supposed to sell everything I have and give it to the poor and then come follow you? Oh, wow. So parables have a prophetic quality to them because they allow you to get outside of yourself and enter a story over there. And then the guns point back toward you. And if you're reading the Word of God, you want that to happen because you want to know. You want to know what it's all about. You want the guns pointed at you. Why? Because you want an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. You want to get rid of all the stuff in your life, all the idols, all the adultery, all the silliness, all the foolishness, all the defensiveness. Get rid of it so that you can draw near to him. So the one who believes wants the parables. I want to enter into the story. I want to make the moral judgments and then have them turned on me. I want the spiritual reality and then have it applied to my own life. That's the nature of a parable is that. It reveals the kingdom to believers in a very, very powerful way. And that's the reason that David said immediately, I have sinned. When Nathan said, you're the man, I have sinned. So you see the effect of a parable with a believer like David, that it brings repentance and faith and restored relationship. And if you want to see restored relationship, just read Psalm 51. And read about the misery of sin and the pain of selfishness and the self-destructive nature of sin itself. And then look at the glory of restoration. You know, where his broken heart is healed and where the fullness of the Spirit comes and where he knows he is indeed a friend, a man after God's own heart. What a wonderful salvation we have. And parables help us to enter into that salvation. So, They reveal the kingdom to believers. But secondly, now this is hard. This is one of those hard sayings of Jesus. I don't understand it, preacher. It just doesn't seem like Jesus at all. But the parables conceal the kingdom from unbelievers. They conceal the kingdom from unbelievers. 
Well, I guess we can start by saying, look, Israel really isn't Jesus' fault. You know, it's our hardened hearts. When we do not believe, everything's a riddle. Sometimes I'll have men say to me, well, I just don't understand. And you explain that. Yeah, but I don't understand this. And you explain that. Yeah, and I don't understand this. And you explain that. Yeah, but let's go back over here because really I don't understand. And they just don't ever understand anything. Yes. You know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know how to ask a question that demands an answer so that you never have to come to a decision. If you have to have 100% knowledge about anything, you're never going to make a decision. And let me tell you something. You're never going to have 100% information about Jesus Christ because He is infinitely glorious and you're never going to put your mind around Him. So, if you have to have 100% knowledge about Jesus Christ before you make a decision, let me tell you what you're doing. You're simply warding off a decision. And everything I tell you about Him will be riddled with lack of information. And everything that comes clear to others in the parable of the kingdom will just be a puzzle to you. Because, well, what about this? What about that? What about this? And you see the disciples, what about this? And Jesus said, don't you understand? If you don't understand this one, you're not going to understand anything. Why not? Because they didn't believe. They came to believe later. When you believe, then you'll find that even with people who are mentally impaired, and even with four or five-year-olds, and some of you have seen it in your own families, they get the kingdom because they believe. And the parables make sense to them. So it begins with our own unbelief. And when you do not believe, the teachings of Jesus actually have a hardening effect. And that's what Jesus is saying. These are acts of judgment. Yikes. So Jesus comes teaching in parables both for salvation and for judgment. Then when he teaches this way, you can begin to see the water divide. You can begin to see, oh, folks go this way and folks go this way through the parables. Because some get it like David. And some, like the Pharisees, want to kill him. And say he's full of the devil. That's how extreme things become. So it begins with the hardness of heart. But we really, in honesty with the text, have to go another step. There is such a thing called a judicial hardening. And it seems to me that what Jesus is saying is the heart was already hard. And the teaching of Jesus through parables actually makes a hard heart harder. And it's called judicial hardening. That is, we are being judged in our unbelief. We get even harder in our unbelief. Now, example, think about Pharaoh. Pharaoh would not let the people go to worship. That's all they wanted to do initially was just to go out into the, into the wilderness for a festival to worship. And, and Pharaoh would not let them. Uh, Moses says in Exodus, he hardened his heart. Then by the end of these plagues and back and forth with Moses and Pharaoh, you find God says he hardened Moses' heart. You want to say, well, was this not Moses' fault? No, Moses started. He hardened his own heart. And then there was a judicial hardening. The teaching and the commandments of Moses to let the people go that they may worship God. And the plagues themselves only made Moses harder. And what you find, gentlemen, this is the danger of going on in unbelief, just choosing not to believe Christ in the kingdom, is that eventually everything in life, especially your struggles, end up hardening you. And if you'll notice with someone who's a mature believer in Christ, his difficulties, his persecutions, his tribulations make him softer. Make him more humble. Make him more usable. What you find in unbelief, it makes you less usable. Makes you harder. Makes you more unreasonable. Makes you bitter. It tears down relationships. It doesn't build it. So you see the same sort of judicial hardening here with Jesus Christ. Now, leave your finger there and turn back to uh, in your, your Bibles to uh, page 1083, 1084, 1085, actually. And here you find this quotation. Uh, God said to Isaiah, 
Go and tell this people. You look at verse nine. Go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. This is his commission to Isaiah to go preach. This is his ordination service. Thanks a lot, Lord. Make their ears dull. Close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I said, Isaiah said, obvious question. How long is this going to go on, Lord? For how long, O Lord? And here's the answer. Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth, a tithe, 10% of the people remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. So you see what God is doing? He is judging his people who have been in disobedience. They've abandoned the law of God. They don't care anymore about the poor. They've become wealthy and they've hoarded their goods. They've decided they can mix true God worship with other kinds of worship and other kinds of lifestyles. They've decided they could do that. Uh, They have decided that they can take the Lord's name in vain and ignore worshiping him. As we see in Isaiah 57, 58, they decide Sabbath doesn't mean anything to them. It's just another business day. Get ready for the next day. It has nothing to do with the worship. They've done all these things. God's going to judge them. And you see, he's going to leave 10%. He's going to, he's going to destroy 90% of the church and leave 10%. He says, now, just like the terebinth and the oak, if you leave a stump, it'll grow back. So he is not abandoning us. He's pruning us like big time prune. Now, how's he going to do it? Preaching the word of God. Isn't that amazing? He's going to set Isaiah up to preach. Now, you might say, this is an aside, why would Isaiah do such a thing? Why would he agree to that? Well, if you look earlier in Isaiah, you'll see that he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the seraphs were singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the doorpost and the threshold shook. He had a vision of the living God in all of his glory and all of his might and all of his majesty. That's the reason Isaiah did what he was told to do. And then when Isaiah beheld the glory of God and said, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the majesty of the king, so I'm destroyed because I'm a sinner. And then God, as it were, nodded to the seraph and he took a coal from the altar and sizzled the lips of the unholy prophet. And cleanse them and said, your sins are forgiven, you're atoned for. And then when God says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah would have to have been a fruitcake to say anything other than here am I send me. Because he had beheld the majesty of God. And he had experienced his all forgiving grace. All of his transgressions forgiven. And when you've experienced that, even if your Christian testimony means that certain people will be hardened and make your life more difficult, That doesn't matter because you've seen the holiness of Christ and you've beheld the love and the grace of his forgiveness. You've experienced it. And so when he calls us to go and be a testimony, regardless of the response, all we need to know is, are you still holy? Are you still divine? Are you still majestic? And do you still forgive sinners? And if you do, I'm gone. I'm headed out of here. I'm going to do your will. That's what got Isaiah to do it. Of course, that's what got Jesus to do it. Because we know, Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. So it was the relationship he had with the Father. It was the crowning moment of his ascension that he knew was coming. and He believed it with all of his heart. But now he willingly and joyfully faces whatever the Father gives him to do, including teaching in such a way that causes the preachers to hate him even more and want to kill him and call him a demon. So that's what parables do. They actually help us to understand the kingdom. They also obscure the kingdom and conceal the kingdom from unbelievers. Notice, thirdly, the parables explain the kingdom's selective reception. This is very important to understand. You might wonder, why does Jesus begin his kingdom stories with four soils. 
I understand why you might talk about the mustard seed, this small little thing that you, you can't even see really with your naked eye that grows to be a great bush to provide shelter for the birds of the air. How the kingdom's so small now, but later it's going to be. I, I get that. I understand the wheat and the tares that the kingdom is mixed now. Don't tear it apart. When the harvester comes later, he'll take care of that. I understand that. But why the four soils? Gentlemen, I think this is the reason. Because in the previous chapter, we are told that the religious leaders did two things. Number one, they started to plot to kill Jesus. Here are the preachers. Number two, they called him a demon. Then you see with his family, they think he's crazy. Now, you are a disciple. You're, if you will, a Presbyterian, if you can get this, you're, a, you're an elder. You're on the session with Jesus. Okay? Or if you're a Baptist, he's on the deacon board. Or if you're a Roman Catholic or Episcopalian, he's the bishop. And you're his closest associate. And all these people, the other clergy, are telling you he's demon-possessed. And his own family thinks he's nuts. So who are you to follow him? You know him better than his own family? You're beginning to wonder. So were the disciples. If this is the kingdom of God, why are we not getting a larger following? And I'm sure you thought about that. If this all is true, it seems obvious to me, but wow, I mean, I'm dealing with some nice people who are actually more generous than I am. They're good people in our culture and they contribute to our city and they don't believe it. In fact, most people here don't believe it. Could it something like this really be true if most knowledgeable, sane people don't believe it? That's what the disciples were asking. So Jesus gives a parable about the kingdom to explain something. Yes, it's not going to receive 100% following right now. As a matter of fact, it may not even get a majority following. Let me tell you why. There's nothing wrong with the seed. There's nothing wrong with the sower. That is, there's nothing wrong with the message. And there's nothing wrong with the messenger, necessarily. Now, oftentimes the human messenger here, yeah, okay, we got our problems. But I'm talking about Jesus Christ as the ultimate messenger, as he speaks through you. Nothing wrong with either of those two. But there is often something wrong with the soil. So Jesus tells a parable to explain to the disciples the nature of the kingdom in this life. Don't expect it to be hugely popular because we're dealing with four soils. That's the reason he tells it. So uh, he is uh, explaining the kingdom's selective reception. Now, he says, first of all, uh, some people are like the hardened path. Okay, if that's what they're like, then here's what happens. The word is sown. And before it ever gets a second thought, Satan comes, swoops in, and takes it away. Gone. If you've read uh, Letters to Malcolm, Chiefly on Prayer by C.S. Lewis, you know that uh, Wormwood is writing his nephew. Do I have this right? Screw tape is writing his nephew, Wormwood, and telling him how to deal with these humans. And they're watching this one guy who's in the library thinking about God. And Screwtape says to him, get him out of there immediately. Get him out in the streets. And let him just realize that those crazy thoughts he had when he was all by himself in the library, that they were just really remote and, you know, airy-fairy. And here's where real business is on the streets. Get his mind off of it. That's a typical beaten path strategy of the devil. You have these moments of contemplation when you're all alone and you know the Lord is real and you know that he's calling you. And then you get start dealing with business again. You say, no, what was that foolishness? I was just being a sissy. I really wasn't thinking clearly. This is where the rubber meets the road. That's seed that hit the soil. And before you ever took time to contemplate it and begin to put it into practice, gone. Water off a duck's back. It often happens, Jesus says. The second soil shows us that some people are like rocky soil. We don't mean rocky Anthony in this case. Although, if you need to use that as an analogy to get it clear in your mind, it's all right. Not just teasing. But some people are like rocky soil. The word is sown and immediately springs up. And Jesus says, there's immediate joy. People meet Jesus and hear the gospel and they are so excited about it. And then trouble or persecution because of the word 
comes and they fall away. You know, I I really have a concern about people that I observe who make their profession of faith in a very emotionally powerful environment. And they make that decision quickly. And that can happen. You know, some of you became a Christian like that. You know exactly where it was and what the circumstances were. And for some of you, it was a very emotional experience. But when I observe that, I want to be very cautious. And, you know, if if that person says to me, am I really a Christian now? I say, well, let's just wait and see. Let's just wait and see. The seed has sprung up. There's great joy. They can articulate the gospel. They're excited about it. But we haven't seen any fruit yet. This could be shallow soil. What's shallow soil? It's where the rock is right near the surface and you only get about that much soil. And so it can, the, the, the wheat can never establish a root structure. It can't go down. So when the sun beats down upon it, it can't pull in enough water to keep itself alive. It's shallow. And shallow experiences, need, you need to wait and see if they're deeper experiences. So if that's the kind of experience you had, just persevere. Thank God for the joy. Thank God for the understanding that you have and persevere and let those roots go down. Jesus says, this is not, this is not a saving faith with someone who springs up and looks like the real thing is real excited about it and can give you the four points of the gospel and says he received it. So he says, some soil is like that. You get an initial reaction. You think someone's going to follow, but they really haven't been converted. They've been worked upon by the Holy Spirit, but they haven't been changed within. There's a difference. Some people, thirdly, are like thorny soil. The word is sown and it springs up and the sun beats on it and it doesn't die away. Persecutions come and they're there. They stick with it. But they forgot to take the weeds out of the soil. And the weeds grow up, the thorns grow up, And eventually, they suck the nutrients and the water out of the soil. And there's none left for the fruit-bearing plant. And it dies and it's choked out. And what are those thorns? Jesus interprets it for us. They are the worries. When the Bible says, when Jesus says, do not worry, there's a reason for that. It has to do with your soul. Jesus commands you not to worry. He doesn't say, don't be concerned. He doesn't say don't be conscientious. He doesn't say don't work hard. He says don't worry. Trying to take control over things over which only God has control or other people have control. And that's why we spend all our time worrying about things we have no control over. And we are commanded not to do that. Why? It has a choking effect upon your faith. It's a weed. It needs to be rooted out. And if you're a good weed puller, you wait until the ground is just a little soft so you can get every last shred of the roots out. You know, when, when your kids pull weeds, all they want to do is snap the top off so that you think they weeded. But when you weed, you're concerned about the ultimate fruitfulness in that garden and you want to pull it all the way out by its root. I have a good friend who's a missionary for 30 years. And when he had to come home because he, they sent them out of Sudan, they had to leave. This was back in the 80s. He moved into the area where I was, and he was a member, and actually an elder in our church. And I went to visit him at his house one day, and he just came right out of the garden. He was wearing a hat, and it said on the hat, I hate weeds. <laughs> and that's exactly what we should be wearing. We should be wearing in our minds, I hate weeds. I hate worry. Because it takes me my eyes off the Lord and puts my eyes on myself. And that's the definition of someone whose faith is being destroyed. You take your eyes off of Jesus Christ and you put them on yourself. That's exactly what you do when you start to worry. You're thinking about yourself. And you're thinking within the confines of your own capacities, your own abilities, your own strength, your own weaknesses. You're assessing it all humanly and you're afraid because you're looking at yourself. And when Peter did that, he started to sink. And the moment he put his eyes back on Jesus, he walked on the water. Get your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Get rid of the weeds because they'll choke out the faith. That the Lord Himself has given you. Weeds. The worries of this life. The deceitfulness of wealth. He doesn't just say wealth. He says the deceitfulness of wealth. We are blessed to have many good things that God gives us. Things invisible and things visible. 
And we give him the glory and the credit for giving us food to eat and clothes to wear and a roof over our head and money in the bank. And we're grateful. So there's nothing per se wrong with wealth. But there is something very wrong with the deceitfulness of wealth, which is that your wealth can make you the man that you are or that your wealth can make a statement about how important you are or that your wealth can keep you alive until you finally go home. That if you just get your retirement account in good shape and get those barns built, you'll be fine. And then a flood comes and takes it all away. And then where are you? You were deceived because you thought you could spare yourself by your own wealth. It became an idol. It became your God that was going to protect you. That's the deceitfulness of wealth. And it has many symptoms. When men care more about the profit on a deal than they do the welfare of the people involved in it. They've been deceived. When people think more of themselves because they live in a big house than that they care for the poor widow down the street, they've been deceived. And these are the deceits of wealth. And I tell you the reason the Lord hates it is because it chokes Him out of your life. You cannot have both. You cannot have both a love for money And a desire to exalt yourself and to be protected by wealth. And also have a close, intimate, functional, fruitful relationship with Jesus Christ. Those two things don't go together. They're absolute enemies. You cannot love God and also love mammon. Make your choice. And one will choke out the other. Jesus will choke out the deceitfulness of wealth. And the deceitfulness of wealth will choke out Jesus. And he hates it. And so he says, get rid of it, pull it out, it's a weed. Or the desires for other things. Here we're getting really to the root of the matter. What do you need? What do you need to have a fruitful life? What do you need to have a full life? What do you need to have a happy life? What do you need to be successful in your own eyes? What do you need besides the Lord Jesus Christ living in and through you? Give me one thing you need. Whatever it was, it's a God. The desire for other things. It's just that simple. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and the other things will be added to you. He will take care of the other things. You get one thing on your mind. And the problem with this third soil, it seems to have all kinds of possibilities. It really seems to be the real thing. It has some nutrients in the soil. It understands something of the kingdom. But it didn't get rid of the other things. And pretty soon, they took over. And that's exactly what they do. They will not tolerate being second place. The other things, just like Jesus Christ, will demand first place. And you've got Jesus Christ and these other no-gods competing for number one in your life. They are all competing. They all claim to be number one. They're all going after you. You've got to choose. Because one of them is going to win, not two of them. Only one of them is going to win. That's the third soil. It's probably the most dangerous of all. Fourthly, some people are like fertile soil. The word is sown. And look at this. It produces a crop 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. How lovely. Here, this soil is real soil. It has nutrients in it. The seed had time to gestate. The soil was hanging on to the seed. It had depth so that when the plant began to grow outwardly, it had an infrastructure. It had a private life. It had a relationship. It had depth to its, its roots so that it could sustain the outer public life. And not only that, there was a careful cultivation of the soil so the weeds were taken out and the thorns did not come up and choke it. What a beautiful soil. And when you have a soil like that, I'm telling you what, there's nothing wrong with a seed. There's nothing wrong with a sower. You put a seed in soil like that and you're going to end up with a harvest that is a bumper crop. That's what Jesus is saying. And the test of the soil is the crop. Now, what is the crop? What is the fruit? Well, I'd like to suggest to you it's just bearing the nature of the kingdom. It's Christ-likeness. And, you know, you can see physical evidences of this as well. I mean, some of you were converted decades ago. Some of you more recently. And it doesn't take long before whatever energy was put into you by the church, by believers, is multiplied hundreds of times over. I look at some of your lives, and I know you were carefully cultivated. I know people cared about you and communicated Christ to you and loved you and disciplined you and 
reared you and coached you and mentored you. And now look at yourselves. You've multiplied a hundred times out there. And that's the very nature of the kingdom. Someone leads you to Christ and then you're out there with the hundreds and the thousands serving them, caring for the poor, engaging the kingdom of God, sharing Christ. And this is what the fertile soil does. So Jesus says, don't make an assessment about the kingdom based on the response because there are four different soils out there. Now, secondly, Roman numeral two, the secrets of the kingdom will one day be evident to all. I wish we had time to deal with this. Let me just say this. Here's what Jesus is saying. In, in that verse 21, if you look at it, he says, do you bring a lamp in and put it under a bowl or a bed? Well, that's stupid. No, of course you don't do that. You put it on a stand. Now, here's the lesson, verse 40 to 22. For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed. And whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. He's saying, now, if you, if you believe, you'll get this. If you've got ears... And my, my wife used to say to our kids, you know, you say something to them, it looks like it's water off a duck's back. That get. She said, hold on just a minute. She said, David, turn around. Just a minute. Put your ears on. And here's what they had to do. <laughs> my little kids look so dumb. You know, four, three, four, five years old. My wife would say, put your ears on. Yes, ma'am. And then she would tell them, and then she would say, now tell me what I just told you. And this, this is CEO stuff. I mean, really... If you want to know if the people reporting to you get it, have them write you a memo, right? That's what my wife was doing with three-year-olds. Tell me what I just said. And that's how you know you've got your ears on. Now, so if you've got your ears on, you should be able to repeat it back if you believe it. And what he's saying is the things that are hidden are meant to be revealed. What he's saying to his disciples is right now it's hidden. We look like ordinary guys. We are kings incognito. And one day, it's all going to bust out. Jesus then looked like a mere carpenter who had studied his Bible a little bit. Just an ordinary guy. Even the disciples made the mistake of thinking he was just kind of a special, ordinary guy. One day, he's coming back in glory. Right now, he's invisible completely. We don't even have an ordinary guy. He's no, not here at all. Where is he? You can't see him. And we, just like the Old Testament pagans, are told, where's your God? They said to the Israelites, where's your God? We can tell you where our God is. It's right there. It's that big golden calf right there. You see this over here? See the sun up there? There's our God. Where's yours? I can't even see him. Ha ha! Just wait. And people now say, where's your Jesus? I don't see him anywhere. And you are proclaiming a kingdom that has no visible authority at all. And the biggest danger for guys, including preachers especially, is that we try to get the authority. Let me put my degrees on the wall and tell you that I have authority to preach the gospel. Let me put my robe on and the stripes on it and a yoke on my neck. and all. Let me give you all the paraphernalia to convince you that I've got some kind of authority to speak to you. The fact of the matter is, whenever I go for some other authority, I've abandoned the only authority I've got, which is the invisible authority of the Lord Jesus Christ reigning as King and promising to come in the future. And that's the only authority you've got. When you begin to say, let me tell you what a difference it made for me to be a Christian. I became an honest man, became very successful in my business. Or let me tell you what difference it makes for me to be a Christian. You know, my sex life is better. You know, it's just wonderful how that works. Well, these things may be true, but if that is your warrant, you have exchanged the invisible warrant that you can't prove for something you're trying to prove. The difficulty of being a disciple in this life is that it's hidden. And what Jesus is saying is meant to be disclosed. And the key to the kingdom is one day it will. And then you'll be standing upon the invisible, reigning authority of the majestic, holy Lord Jesus Christ that visibly rules over all the cosmos. And you'll say, there's my God. But for now, you live in the hiddenness. And Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 that now Christ is hidden. He's cryptic. We're cryptically hidden in Christ. But he says one day when He appears, that is when He is revealed, when He is made clear, when He is made visible, He says you too will appear with Him in glory. You will be made visible. You will be seen for what you are. But the very nature of the kingdom is that there are four soils. We get many different responses. 
Because the kingdom is hidden to this visible, broken world. But one day it's going to be made known. And then lastly, I've got two minutes. The secrets of the kingdom demand our careful attention. Put your ears on. He says, be careful how you hear. What does this mean? First of all, read, listen to, study, contemplate God's Word often. Listen to it. Let the seed fall on your soil. Let the Word fall on your soul. Get around it. Let it come to you. Contemplate it. Don't let the devil take it away the moment you read it. Let it begin to your mind ruminate over what the meaning of these things are. Secondly, if you want to be careful how you hear, be sure you hear it as the very voice of God. This is not another book. This is not like Caesar's Gallic Wars. This is not like Plato and Aristotle. This is the very voice of God. And so when you listen to it and the seed falls on your soil, be sure that you understand this is the seed of God. And it's powerful. The gospel transforms worlds and kingdoms. And it's meant to transform you because it is the very word of God. Be careful how you hear the word of God. So read it, listen to it, study it, and contemplate it often. Attend to it as the very voice of God and thoroughly put it into practice. <clears throat> the way that you build your house on the rock is that you put into practice what you hear. If you do not put into practice what you hear, you're building your house, says Jesus, on sand. And when the flood comes, goodbye. Oh, you had a wonderful house. You could give us all the principles of carpenting, carpentry. You knew plumbing, electrician work. You're just great at that. Your roof didn't leak. It's wonderful. One thing you forgot. You built it on sand, you idiot. And the flood comes, it's gone. Why? You never put it into practice. All you could do is talk about it. So be careful. The, the consequences are profound. If we listen and obey, we receive more. Isn't that amazing? You want more capacity to understand more of the Word of God? Put into practice what you got. It's that simple. It's not more hours in the library. Put into practice what you've got. And when you put into practice what you've got about how you should love your wife and care for her and speak tenderly to her, then you'll be given more knowledge about how to deal with her and how to love her and how to care for her. If we do not listen and obey, even what we know will be taken away. The very things you were taught in Sunday school, they're gone when you don't put them into practice. So, here you have it. The kingdom of God is a mystery. Jesus teaches to us in parables for a very good reason. That we might understand. That we might be transformed. That we might hear and hear carefully. That our lives might be changed. That we might be the agents to change the world around us by the secret of the kingdom of God. And for those who don't hear, don't worry about them. Just continue to minister to them and realize they're always there until Jesus comes back and makes the entire world fertile soil. Let us pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the privilege of discussing it today. Please, Lord, may that Word fall upon fertile soil in our own hearts enable us to go out of here and put into practice what we have today discovered from Your Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.